0: Hi, this is Matthew, and together with my co-host Andrew, we produce the podcast, Still Unbelievable. Still Unbelievable started life as a response project to the podcast and book, Unbelievable, which has hosted discussions between Christians and non-Christians for almost two decades. On Still Unbelievable, we review Christian arguments and interview a variety of guests to shine a light on the darker side of Christianity, the parts that Christians prefer to ignore. So, if you want to challenge the things that Christians say and occasionally have a laugh about it too, find us in your favorite podcast provider by searching for Still Unbelievable. Is it time for a mind shift?
1: I'm happy today to be meeting with Matthew Taylor. We're going to have a lot to talk about, but let's get some of the stuff out of the way. You are a senior scholar at the Institute for Islamic Christian and Jewish studies in Baltimore. So welcome Matthew to MindShift podcast. Thank you for having me, Clint. I'm excited to do this. Yeah, we've got a lot to talk about and obviously we'll get to this at some point. You've got a book coming out. It's called the violent take it by force. It should be out. I think you said in September. And it's all about the charismatic Christian leaders who helped instigate the Capitol riot. And then I read a piece of yours in the bulwark about Mike Johnson, the new GOP speaker. So I thought, I've got to talk to Matthew, because obviously we've done a lot of the same kind of research. What led you to all this stuff in the first place? I mean, you're talking about all this dominion theology, Christian right, new apostolic reformation, Seven Mountains mandate. What led you into that? I was not looking to get into this. Um, So I, I, I grew up (laughs) <laughs> I grew up
0: evangelical. Um, I uh, worked for InterVarsity Christian Fellowship for about seven years um, as a campus minister. Um, and, and while I was working for InterVarsity, I actually went to Fuller Seminary, started doing a master's degree at Fuller. Um, and then um, I just I, I realized over time that I was no longer evangelical theologically. Mm-hmm. Um, and also I was fascinated with Islam and uh, didn't really want to convert Muslims so much as converse with them. And so wound up doing a PhD in religious studies focused on modern religious movements and especially on Christianity and Islam. Um and my so my first book is is about uh the Salafi movement uh within Sunni Islam in America post 9/11. Um and I I literally sent the manuscript of that book off the morning of January 6, 2021 to the publisher for a review. And so I was I I I I was just kind of in a little bit of a research lull. And then mm-hmm. a, the Capitol riot happens, and I had I had caught some of the inklings of some of this stuff leading up mm-hmm. to the Capitol riot, and I just I was because I had a little space to start researching. I just really started trying to dig in. Who were the leaders? What were the ideas? What were the theologies
1: that mm-hmm. drove this action? And that's that's what led me to the New Apostolic Reformation. Yeah. So what did you what did you find out? Because I mean, what I saw we mentioned before we hit record. I mean, when I saw the Capitol rise, I mean, I'm over here in the UK, but I I could obviously spot the news. And I, I was struck by the Christian nationalism piece, the Dominion theology piece, the militia groups, the whole Trump thing, the QAnon stuff, all of it kind of came together at the January 6th riots. What, what was your sort of take on the whole thing?
0: I think what initially interested me was the dynamic of these charismatic and especially non-denominational, what we would call independent charismatic prophets and the role that they played in really driving... The 2020 mm-hmm. election, um, you had in the 2016 election, there were a handful of these uh, NAR and um, independent charismatic prophets who prophesied that Trump would win in 2016. By the time the 2020 election cycle re- run, came around, you had hundreds mm-hmm. of these prophets. Many of them itinerant prophets, some of them attached to communities. Uh, most of them are like on YouTube and social media posting these prophecies. But it was it was it was a united chorus of prophets all saying that Donald Trump was going to win in 2020. Hmm. And this became the spirituality that drove January 6th for many, many, many of the Christians who showed up that day is they believed these prophecies. They believed that God wanted Donald Trump to win. And then but again, if you're if you're familiar with this kind of independent charismatic world, prophecy is not predicting the future. Prophecy is making known the will of God So that then Christians can enact that will Mm. through spiritual warfare, through prayer, intercession, through activism. And so a lot of the the folks who mobilized for January 6th, a lot of the leaders, many of them connected to the NAR, some in kind of adjoining movements. But the idea was God wanted and still wants Donald Trump to to be president. But we, through spiritual warfare, need to enact the will of God. And this is what Mm. the Jericho marches were about. This is what all the shofar blowing was about. Uh, this is what about a lot of January sixth was about, and there were many people worshiping around the Capitol, groups of Christians singing songs, worship songs, people doing kind of strategic level spiritual warfare, which is very much a, a concept that emerges out of the New Apostolic Reformation. And I, I, what I wound up finding is Peter Wagner had, who uh, was Peter Wagner was the one who really was kind of uh, the instigator of the mm-hmm. Apostolic Reformation, and he had this very close knit circle called the Eagles Vision Apostolic Team of 25 apostles and prophets of the New Apostolic Reformation. This was the core of the core of the New Apostolic Reformation. It was Wagner's personal mentoring group. Out of that group of 25, five of them show up on January 6th in Washington, D.C., around the Capitol. And those same five were immensely influential in instigating and mobilizing Christians to be there that day. And so in my book, I talk about them as the, the principal theological architects, Of the Capitol riot
1: Mm. you mentioned that maybe we should go back and do some of the backstory because you talked about you went to fuller seminary and that's where dr c peter wagner was kind of got his start in a way wasn't it as far as i understand he was a missionary before and then he became a professor professor of church growth and other things so what can you tell us about c peter wagner and what's his connection to the start of the new apostolic reformation
0: Yeah. Wagner is a fascinating character. Um, Mm -hmm. Was uh, very much a mainstream evangelical in the way that he came up and was raised. Um, And yes, he was a missionary in Bolivia for about 15 years. Um, He actually attended Fuller Seminary, came back to Fuller um, after his uh, time overseas, and um, became very enamored with this um, theory that was kicking around um, in evangelical circles, and especially at Fuller at the time, called church growth theory. Mm. Um, and the idea of church growth theory was you could take the data of social science, Wagner's PhD is actually in social ethics from USC, take the data of social science, merge it with evangelical theology, and drive uh, exponential growth in churches through more and more people attaching themselves to churches or attaching themselves to movements. So Wagner spent about 30 years working on these church growth theories. Um, and but then over the course of his career, especially towards the late '80s into the '90s, he became fixated on the this non-denominational charismatic space, and thinking that that is where the real growth of the church is going to occur. And there were ideas that have been circulating in that independent charismatic space for decades. By that point, of this idea of the rebirth or the renewal of apostles and prophets to come and lead the the eschatological, the end times mm-hmm. church into this great revival. And Wagner went from being a kind of theorist who was fascinated with these ideas into becoming a participant. And he wound up being convinced through some personal prophecies that he was given that he himself was an apostle, that he was one of these end times apostles who was supposed to help reconfigure the church for the 21st century. And in the mid-1990s, he helps kind of coin and then platform this phrase, the new apostolic reformation, that's trying to describe this um, kind of revolution in church governance through apostles and prophets being commissioned by the Holy Spirit to bypass the bureaucracies and the denominations and to kind of renew and 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 um, kind of instigate the church into this great end times revival. He winds up leaving Fuller in 1999. He retires early from Fuller and starts trying to build this thing, trying to build the new apostolic mm-hmm. church. So it starts out in this very theoretical frame. And then he builds about eight interlinked institutions that he oversees for the last decade or so of his career. Uh, he retires in 2010. And those institutions, though, those they're they're low profile. They they you are gonna find them in like a lot of databases, that sort of thing. But the the memberships of these networks that Peter Wagner builds becomes the backbone of Christian Trumpism.
1: Mm. I remember studying this when I was in seminary in the Late 1990s in Portland, Oregon. And I remember coming across C. Peter Wagner at the time, and there was an association with John Wimber. That's another big name that comes out of that. Because as I seem to recall the story, I think Wimber was one of his students. Isn't that correct? Where then Wimber came back and started teaching a class, and his kind of thesis was why can't Christians sort of manifest the same miracles we read about that Jesus did in the gospels and so forth? Let's just have this miraculous prophetic movement. I remember hearing that fivefold ministries. That's another one, isn't it? A buzzword whereby they're talking about the Ephesians five model, bringing back apostles and prophets along with pastors, teachers, evangelists, and so forth. We're going to bring all these ministries back into the church. There's got to be a whole connection with all that too, isn't there?
0: Yeah. So um, the the idea of fivefold ministry really gets started with a movement called the Latter Rain. It's Mm a revival movement that emerges in Saskatchewan, Canada in 1948 and really kind of flourishes in the early 50s, spreads all over North America, really all over the world. I mean, Hillsong Church is a descendant of the Latter Rain movement, just like the Mm -hmm. New Reformation. A lot of the word of faith, of prosperity gospel stuff, all can also be tied back to this Latter Rain movement. But that's where you start to have this idea um, in the 1950s of renewed apostles and prophets, um, and those ideas just kind of percolated in that non-denominational kind of amorphous space for a number of decades before Peter Wagner and some of these other folks picked them up in the 90s. Yeah, John Wimber was was a very important figure in Peter Wagner's life. Um, so Wimber started as a doctoral student under Wagner. Um, and because Wagner was, this was in the 1970s, because Wagner was fixated with these church growth ideas, he saw in Wimber, he calls him a bona fide practitioner, mm. church growth. He thought that, because anything that, John Wimber touched, just suddenly people wanted to be a part of it. Yeah.
1: He yeah, really, deal.
0: yeah. He was. And and he, so, um, Wimber worked with Wagner for a while teaching these church growth ideas. And then he left to go lead the vineyard, the vineyard movement. Mm-hmm. And he was, uh, his church with the Anaheim Vineyard was the flagship church of the vineyard movement. Um, and then, um, they, they, Wagner invites Wimber to help teach a course at Fuller called, um, Signs, wonders, and church growth—very controversial. That um, this was started in 1982. The idea of the course was you could have. Um, it was. I mean, even though Wagner was the professor of record, Wimber did all the teaching, and and um, Wimber would lecture about signs and wonders as as a vehicle for evangelism, as a vehicle for church growth. And then at the last, the last hour of the course was just uh, what they called the clinic, where uh, Wimber would invite students from the audience to come. And, and talk about their ailments, talk about their emotional health, mm-hmm. and then he would pray over them or g- try to perform healings on them, try to perform exorcisms on them. And this, uh, the Fuller faculty wound up intervening and in canceling this course yeah. after a few years because it was so popular, yeah, there were hundreds of students trying to audit the course,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and because it was out of control and it was giving, it was ruining Fuller's reputation <laughs> as a mainstream evangelical organization, way yeah. so, too out there. Yeah, it was. But it, this was this was Peter Wagner. I mean, he was a real mm-hmm. renegade. He liked pushing the envelope. He wanted to um bring these ideas that were from the very much from the fringes of evangelicalism in the late 20th century. He wanted those fringe ideas to become integral to evangelicalism. And a lot of those fringe ideas were coming out of this charismatic space.
1: Mm-hmm. And I know that trajectory like you just described still goes on today because when we first moved to the UK about 18 so, or so years ago, We were a part of a charismatic church up in the Northwest of England, up near Liverpool in that area. And we ran into a couple at our church and they had just come back from Rick Joyner's so-called prophetic school in the States. I think it was in South or North Carolina. And that was their philosophy of ministry. They basically said the whole thing, church growth, evangelism, proselytization, and all that is based on us going out into town, praying, and God will just direct us to people that, that need healing and all sorts of other things. So And that's how we're going to grow the church. That's how we're going to witness. That's how we're going to heal people. And it's all based on signs and wonders, miraculous, and we're going to trust God that he's going to lead us to the right people. So And that wasn't that many years ago. So that's very much still alive today. Yeah. And then, and yeah, so there's been a lot of um, had permutations and styles of adapting
0: yeah. these ideas, but a, the, the the real driving core of it is the new Apostolic Reformation, these networks that Wagner built.
1: Mm-hmm. But now you gotta bolt on the Dominion theology piece because I know I think Peter Wagner wrote a book, something I think it's just called Dominion or something to that effect. I've read so Dominion exclamation point. Oh yes. Dominion. (laughs) (laughs) Now he's tagging on this Seven Mountains mandate. So I'm not sure he originated that because as far as I've understood, it's the credit is taken by uh Peter Cunningham Cunningham and Cunningham, yeah. Yeah, Lauren Cunningham and right. uh, Bill Bright from Campus Crusade, they claim that it was this miraculous thing that you know God revealed to both of them independently and all the rest of it. But you can trace the, the ideas back, I think, further. But doesn't he sort of bolt that onto this sort of philosophy of ministry?
0: Yeah. So in um, the year 2000, so Wagner leaves Fuller in 1999 and starts building these institutions. He creates Wagner Leadership Institute, creates the Na- International Coalition of Apostles creates um, this Eagles Vision apostolic team that's his kind of mentoring group. Um, and around that same time, there's a charismatic pastor named Lance Woldell who meets Lauren Cunningham. Lauren Cunningham was kind of a, a, a an old lion of the charismatic movement by that point, um, was the founder of Youth With a Mission, which everyone calls YWAM. And Cunningham claims that in 1975, he and Bill Bright were going to have dinner. And the night before they had dinner, they both had the same dream where God revealed to them these seven spheres of influence in society, and you can you can trace those ideas back through Christian Reconstructionism, mm-hmm. back through the Neo-Calvinists of the early twentieth century, even back to John Calvin to a certain degree of this idea of dividing up society into yeah. different sectors yeah. of sphere sovereignty. sovereignty, all that yeah. stuff. Yeah. So the um, but Cunningham and, and Bright add in this element of well, there's a number seven. And they this prophetic dream, but it never really took off for them. I mean, it was it, it, this idea of the seven spheres was around in the 80s and 90s, uh, sometimes in YWAM circles, it was t- talked about. But then Lance Waldell, this kind of washed out charismatic pastor from Rhode Island meets Cunningham in the year 2000, and he actually takes this idea that he hears from Cunningham about the seven spheres, blends it with a near-death experience that he had just heard about. From uh, 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 It was basically third hand that he heard the story. They could never actually track down the real story. But in this near-death experience, the man had a vision of seven mountains rising out of the ocean. And God speaks to him and says, those are the seven kingdoms of this world. So Waldo takes this near-death experience that he's hearing about third hand, takes this prophetic dream he's hearing about second hand from Lord Cunningham, and merges them together into the seven mountain concept. <laughs> and it's changes things though. Cause if, if, if you're talking about influencing a sphere of influence, yeah. well that, how do you do that? Right? Well, you kind of be present in the sphere. It's, it's kind of non-directional, right? But a mountain has a top. And mm-hmm. so now, and then Wagner hears about it shortly after Wallnow starts talking about it, really embraces this idea and starts mentoring now, And they really brings them into the inner circle. But they, they talk about this as conquering the seven mountains. Right, it's a top-down conception of how you transform society, and and the seven mountains are religion, education, family, but also commerce, mm-hmm. right, and mm-hmm. arts and entertainment, yeah. business, right, and, and media. So, yeah. Exactly. So the idea is that you that Christians not only need to go and be present, be salt and light in the world, be be influencing society, but Christians need to take positions of power in every arena of society. And and either have their influence flow down from the, this kind of top down, kind of vanguard move to take over society. And mm-hmm. so, right around uh, 2007, this idea really starts rolling out through all these NAR networks. Um, and and this and then Wagner writes his um, maybe most controversial book, Dominion! Exclamation point! It comes out in January of 2008, um, and this dovetails with the 2008 presidential election because Sarah Palin. Actually, grew up in some of these NAR churches. Had a number mm-hmm. of NAR leaders pray and prophesy over her before she ever became famous. Before she ever became I mean, she, but even before she became governor of Alaska. And so when when John McCain chooses Sarah Palin as his running mate, these NAR folks are like, our person as yes. in life. It's the one to become the most the second most powerful leader in the yeah. country. This nearly a god, god, yeah, yeah, and, and all the seven mountain stuff really kind of <laughs> took off there.
1: It's a great strategy for mobilization, isn't it? When you step back and look at it objectively, because one thing I've understood about it, this is where you got to plug in that role of the apostle, isn't it? Because if you said, okay, in my community, if if you're talking to the average Joe Christian on the pew sort of thing in in your typical church or charismatic evangelical church, you don't have to run for president. You're you're not going to. The key thing is, though, you've got to take dominion over your local mountain, as it were. So you want to run for your school board, you want to do these things. But sitting atop the mountain currently, there's some sort of demonic entity. That's where you need an apostle to sort of break down the gates. And there's all the spiritual warfare component to it. You can't just do it on your own. You need an apostle in that sense, don't you? That's part of the package of the dominion theology, the seven mountains thing. Yeah. And and Wagner had a
0: very open conception of what an apostle is. And this was even controversial within his circles because he would say, there are apostles who are not working in the church. You'd call them marketplace apostles. He sometimes called them Microsoft apostles. Hmm. The idea was that apostles, um, that in every one of these sectors of society, in every one of the mountains, you could have apostles who would conquer that mountain. So Wagner developed a lot of relationships with business people, with politicians, and and, and this belief that those people are, are ordained by God to conquer their mountain or the kingdom of God. And you even find today sometimes Roger Stone, who's kind of cozied up to a lot of these NAR folks <laughs> since January sixth, just within the last year put out w- w- made this statement about Donald Trump is an apostle of God. Right. Uh, of course and so he is. And, 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 and I I don't I don't credit Roger Stone with being a great theologian, but <laughs> he is he is trying to adapt this language and these concepts to appeal to some of these same audiences.
1: Mm-hmm. And that's one thing I've noticed too, talking to other people who've done work like what you're doing. And that is that the Seven Mountains language, someone said it's become the lingua franca of people on the Christian right that would normally theologically not align themselves with the charismatic side. People like uh, the Family Research Council, I mean, they're they're pretty much a fundamentalist conservative organization. But yet you'll hear people like Tony Perkins, they'll use the language of we have to take dominion over these seven mountains and all that. And you think, OK, wait a minute, this has permeated into sort of mainstream evangelicalism, hasn't it? It has,
0: in fact, um, a colleague of mine um, uh, did his name's Paul Jute. He's a professor, a sociologist at Denison University. Did a survey this past March, March of 2023, um, where it was a survey of all Americans. Ask, and he wanted to ask about belief in modern prophecy. But um, I asked him to also see if he could insert a question about the Seven Mountains in there, and so he did. And the question was, mm. uh, and he was a, a, like a strongly agree, agree, neutral, disagree, strongly disagree kind of question. And the, the statement was. Um, Christians should stand atop the seven mountains of culture. Right. So this is, I mean, like this, this is a phrase that would not have made sense to somebody. Exactly. actually Don't not know what that It did not exist <laughs> 25 years ago. In the US, more than twenty percent of the population said they either agree or strongly agree with that statement. Wow. Right. That is the spread of this meme, mm-hmm. really, this 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 yeah. prophecy meme that that Lance Wall now launched. In 2000, and that's the the, the degree to which it has spread. It really has, in many ways, become a lingua franca, especially for the religious right. But you're you're finding people using this language of conquering the seven mountains or the seven spheres and and, and laying it out and talking about strategy for those. So it really has become, in many ways, a blueprint that people use for how to strategize for hyper aggressive Christian takeover, either of local but institutional positions of power or at a national level.
1: When we come back in the second half of this conversation with Matthew Taylor, I want to ask him about Christian Reconstructionism, R.J. Rushduni. That was really the start of this so-called dominion theology. He was probably the first sort of theologian to articulate and use those terms, and I want to find out his take on how does that relate to all this new Apostolic Reformation, Seven Mountains stuff, how does that tie in? Then we're going to get into Mike Johnson, the new GOP Speaker of the House his connections to the NAR, and some of the concerns that Matthew has going forward, especially up into the 2024 presidential election of perhaps Donald Trump being the next president again. So what's going to happen there? But I wanted to let you know what's coming up here in the next few episodes on the show. Got some great stuff in the pipeline. After this episode with Matthew Taylor, I'm bringing you one with Jonathan Davis. I mentioned him on the last one. We actually met in a Facebook group. One of these ones where you're looking for guests and speakers on podcasts, and we have a lot in common. Turns out he's an ex-pastor, ex-seminary professor, just like me. We had a great conversation. Then we get into the Christian right. Then we're going to be talking with Ren Story, again, another ex-evangelical. She has just an amazing backstory coming out of, again, evangelicalism, fundamentalism. And then I've got Sarah McCammon. She's got a book coming out in March, I think it is, called The Ex-evangelicals. And we talked about, again, her backstory growing up in fundamentalism. This is starting to sound familiar, isn't it? But her book it not only tells her story, but she also kind of tracks the story of five other ex-evangelicals that have come out of the faith. And there's always a different trajectory. So it's not a one-size-fits-all by any stretch of the imagination. And of course, as with all these guests, I've had a tremendous amount of resonance coming out of the faith, as I have done as well. So as I mentioned, there's really good episodes waiting to drop in the pipeline in the next few weeks and in the next few months. We've got some other guests lined up as well. I just wanted to mention, if you wanted to support the show on Patreon, you have access to our closed MindShift Zoom calls. And as this episode drops, we will just have completed our February MindShift Zoom call with returning guest Joshua Stewart. Uh, that will be on the 18th of February. But then next month, We're actually going to have Sarah Hayward. She was just on the show on the last episode speaking about her book, Giving Up God. So we have a good hour booked with Sarah. And then I think in the month of April, we're going to have Jonathan Davis come back. So when that episode drops, you'll get a chance to understand a little bit of his backstory. So if you want to meet up with Sarah and Jonathan, these are benefits that you get for being a part of our Patreon supporter community, as well as getting access to our closed MindShift podcast Facebook group. One other piece of news I've been talking for a while about the book that I wrote. Originally, it was titled Baptism, Third Time to Charm, but since I've been working with Tim Sledge, he's been helping me sort of edit the book and we're gonna help promote it when it does come out. We decided that that title, although it was good, probably won't have enough resonance on places like Amazon. So we're in the midst of changing the title for that book. I've just rewritten a preface chapter, so there's work still going on. It's not quite ready to be released, but as my girlfriend keeps reminding me, don't release it until it's good and ready and until you're good and ready. So it might come out here in the next few months. I will keep you posted as to the progress of my book, but it's basically written. I'm just working on fine tweaking the the sort of final details. All right, let's get on back into the second half of this conversation with Matthew Taylor as we discuss taking dominion from the new apostolic reformation to Mike Johnson. Well, let's compare what you just articulated to you mentioned christian reconstructionism i've done a lot of work on rj rush Dooney and the sort of origins now he was a dominion theologian maybe the first one to actually use that term dominion theology or taking dominion in a political sense how can you compare the seven mountains stuff with rush because from what i understand a lot of people found his stuff to be a bit too extreme you know we're going to impose old testament law on society and kind of a top-down takeover it seems like the Seven Mountains guys, they're saying, look, we'll work within the system and we'll change it. Eventually, we will take dominion, but in a different way than maybe R.J. Rush intended. What's your thought on it? So I would i would argue that the New Apostolic Reformation
0: itself emerges at the confluence of this dominion theology coming out of Rush Duny and his fellow Reconstructionists, and then these Latin Reign ideas about modern apostles and prophets and this kind of end times revival. But the Rushdoony, he gets started in the '60s and really kind of flourishes in the '60s and or the '70s and early '80s, and um, he 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 leads a movement that today would or that we would call Christian Reconstructionism. Um, runs something called the Calcedon Foundation, uh, very influential on an intellectual level. Mm-hmm. In the rise of the religious right, um, and a lot of the ideas that come out of the Reconstructionists undergird the rise of the religious right. There, it's 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 an aggressive form of theology. That is that meets the moment of this mood in evangelicalism that says we we're we're on the back foot and we need to take power in society. We need to assert ourselves. Um, but the, the 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 full spectrum of reconstructionist ideas is very very Calvinist. It's really mm-hmm. deeply rooted in this highly reformed theology. And so the reconstructionists basically recognize strategically not everybody's going to be on board with everything. And so in the 1980s, they make a very intentional effort to start reaching out into these independent charismatic networks that were very fledgling at the time, because they saw that the the charismatics were also interested in some of these same ideas. And and one of the reconstructions even said, we can be the light and the charismatics can be the heat, Mm. right? And so the idea was mobilizing these charismatic networks around these ideas. So these ideas were really starting to percolate, uh, this kind of dominion theology it was percolating around these proto-New Apostolic Reformation networks in the late 80s and then early 90s before Wagner ever got involved. And Wagner actually, mm. it took Wagner a while to come around to these Dominion theology ideas. He was not, he's not really that on, on board with it at the start. He was confused by it. I, I've i dug through a bunch of his notes in his archives. Even as late as like 2003, he's writing notes coming out of me. He's like, Dominion theology, question mark. Need some sources <laughs> need some help on understanding this, right? But then Wall now was the gateway because mm. Walnow brings the seven mountains idea in and for Wagner that's practical right that we that we can enact that we can work with and so using now seven mountains is where is how Wagner kind of came around to these dominion ideas and it integrated them into the heart of the NAR very controversially even in the NAR a lot of, a number mm-hmm. of people left in these NAR networks as Wagner started pushing these dominion ideas cuz they were like well I'm on board for reforming the church but I didn't sign up for conquering the world mm. but the inner core of the NAR really sticks with Wagner, embraces Seven Mountains, embraces Dominion theology, embraces this understanding of American politics that they need to have a Holy Spirit-empowered takeover of American politics, and they believe that they are
1: the people God has anointed to do it. Mm. I think you're right. There's like key individuals and movements that come along that kind of repackage maybe some of the more extreme elements, because I'm reminded when you were discussing that, the Coalition on Revival, have you heard of those guys, Dr. Jake Grimm said? He was another one who took a lot of Rush Dooney's more extreme ideas and sort of packaged or repackaged them for the evangelical mainstream, because I came across the Coalition on Revivals. They have like these 17 worldview papers, and the main one, there's a bunch of signatories on it, and as I was reading through the signatories, I was struck by the fact that a lot of them are just mainstream evangelical big names. One of them was the the president of the Bible college that I attended in Portland, Oregon. I'm like, what the heck? What are you signing that for? I didn't think that no. you were a Dominion theology guy, but he wouldn't have thought that. He's just saying, yeah, this is this sounds really good because he's watered down. Another character is Doug Wilson. I don't know if you come across his stuff, but yep. he's up there in Moscow, Idaho. He calls himself something like a Christian Reconstructionist 2.0, and he says, I've kind of sanded off the more rough, objectionable edges of a guy like Rush Dooney and what he's doing in Moscow. In a way, he's trying to take Dominion, I think, but he's he's not using that language explicitly, is he? And 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 really in, in the US right now, I'd say when you're talking about
0: theological Christian nationalism, because there's there's a lot of Christian nationalism that is is more centered around race, like white Christian nationalism that that is brindling together white supremacy and Christian nationalism. You also have groups like the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers that I would almost call a form of secular Christian nationalism. They aren't interested in theology and, and they, they they're interested in Judeo Christian civilization, right? And there's a there's a Christian veneer to it, but it's 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 pretty shallow. The theological forms of Christian nationalism, I would say, is being driven by these two branches of dominion theology. The one that is still very much Calvinist and is the Doug Wilson kind of style Mm -hmm. that is very much, it's it's kind of the direct descendant of Rushduni. The other one is the Seven Mountains charismatic form of dominion theology that is not as explicit, it's not as systematic in its theology, is very much undergirded by these prophecies And but is very aggressive. And if you go and look at who were the Christians who showed up on January 6th, it was overwhelmingly these non-denominational charismatics who were steeped in dominion theology.
1: Mm -hmm. Is there a confluence though when you come to the Christian homeschooling movement? Because obviously that was part of Rush Dooney's thing where he was, you know, you, you could say he was the father of Christian homeschooling in many ways, but his vision was over generations, we will take dominion. It's going to take generations and generations of these kids being raised in these Christian homes, being schooled in them. But then you get a guy like Michael Ferris, uh, he's founder of the HSLDA, Homeschool Legal Defense Association, also founds Patrick Henry College right in Virginia and it's a pipeline for these homeschool kids by which they're going to take dominion politically. They're they're getting funneled, or they were, interning in the Trump White House and in, you know they're, they're, it's a pipeline for these homeschool grads and his vision, I think, he kind of puts a lot of these pieces together and says, Let's put these people in the strategic positions, and thereby will t- ultimately take dominion. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of collaboration. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, part sometimes people talk about Christian
0: nationalism as a movement. Um, and I'm I'm always a little cautious about that because to me, a movement has some coherence and has some shared theology, shared ideas, shared ideology, and really, I would call Christian nationalism more of a tendency or a trend. Um, right? It's it's a way of orienting your religious identity and your national identity and blending those together. And the um, so you have a lot of different theologies, a lot of different movements that are all feeding into this Christian, this developing Christian nationalist trend. And I mean, that that trend goes back to the founding of the United States. The, this, these ideas of the United States as a Christian nation, these debates have been around for a very long time. But um, the aggressive forms of it that we see today and this aggressive mobilization of Christian nationalist sentiment um, around Trump is really being driven by these dominion theology ideas, driven by these prophecies, driven by the seven mountains. The, another one that that Walnow himself is, has been very keen in 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 propounding is this idea of Donald Trump as a Cyrus. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and kind of, let's it's, talk about a Cyrus anointing, right? And this, this idea that Donald Trump, he, he may not be a good Christian, he may not be a, a, a <laughs> member of the people of God, mm. but he is a, a heathen, Warrior king who will yep. come in and protect Christianity, which again, you can you can see how you get there from the Seven Mountains because Wal now uses sure. this as the Seven Mountains. And he says, Well, you don't have to be a pastor to conquer the Government Mountain, right? You need to be a politician, you need to be a brutal politician mm-hmm. who plays by the rules of the Government Mountain. And as long as Trump is doing that in the favor of conservative Christians that is willing to govern in coalition with conservative Christians. They honestly don't care that much about
1: his own personal Mm -hmm. spirituality. That's so true, because I remember reading an article in, I think it was Charisma Magazine. It was one of the last things that C. Peter Wagner wrote before he died, and it was in the run-up to the first Trump election, 2016 election, and he basically said, you know, someone asked him, would you vote for Donald Trump, Dr. Peter Wagner? And his argument was, well, uh, from a Seven Mountains mandate point of view, yes, I would, because he's already conquered media because of The Apprentice and his other TV, you know, shows and he's conquered the business mountain. So he's already conquered two mountains. So if he if he becomes president, that's three. He'll have the political mountain as well. So three out of seven in one character, yes. So what you just articulated fits right into that sort of worldview, doesn't it? And there's a
0: backstory to that, in fact. And this is in some ways the backstory to how evangelicals came around to Donald Trump. So if you go back, Donald Trump in uh, June, 2015, announced his candidacy to to run for president. And almost immediately, a plurality of evangelical voters is supporting Donald Trump. Now, again, in the summer of 2015, there's like 13 candidates. And by the end of 2015, you have like 17 or 18 candidates in the race. So he's only getting like 20% of Mm. the evangelical vote in July of 2015. But that's more than anyone else is getting. And so Donald Trump for about 20 years has had a close relationship with a woman named Paula White, Mm-hmm. So Paula White Kane, because um, she got remarried in, in, in 2015. Um, and that she's been his pastor. She came up as a televangelist in these non-denominational charismatic spaces. And so as he's running in 2015, he asked Paula White to be his point of interface with evangelicals and to be his kind of uh, his advisor, his religious advisor for the campaign. And so he, said, he starts telling her, I want to meet with evangelical leaders but Paula White doesn't know James Dobson. She doesn't know <laughs> Ralph Reed. No. She knows Lance Waldow right. She knows messianic rabbis. She knows televangelists. She knows apostles and prophets because that's the world that she comes from. Mm-hmm. And so they start holding these meetings in Trump tower, gathering religious leaders, mostly these non-denominational charismatic religious leaders to meet with Trump. And these are the people who are getting in on the ground floor on the Trump campaign. And Lance Wall is one of those leaders. And so it's there at meeting with Trump in Trump Tower in the fall of 2015 that he claims that he's he receives this word from God that Donald Trump is a Cyrus. he starts using the Seven Mountains to justify this. And he takes a lot of heat for it. He's one of the first evangelical leaders to endorse Trump. And a lot of evangelicals are very frustrated with this and start pushing back. And so actually, Peter Wagner, who was dying at the time, goes on Facebook in February of 2016. And does it, and and exactly what you just Mm said—that then uses the Seven Mountains and the Cyrus idea to justify supporting Trump. That's that Facebook post later gets posted on Charisma right before the election. But it was in February that Peter Wagner endorsed Trump in the primary, and then all of Wagner's cohort gets on board, and then they become, in many ways, the tip of the spear of Christian Trumpism, both Mm -hmm. in the theology and mobilizing Christians to support Donald Trump again, using these prophecies, using the Seven Mountains, using Cyrus. As these concepts that they're that they're they're vaguely biblical, right? But they're more rooted in these prophecies. That and, and that becomes then the the undergirding theology of Christian support for Donald Trump.
1: Yeah, all the pieces come together. Well, now we come to a guy, Mike Johnson. You know, you wrote this article in the Bulwark, which I read with great interest because again, it, there was a lot of threads that came together for me. Here's a guy, he's a Southern Baptist, but you say, He's a polite extremist because he's very well-spoken. He's not hes not ranting. He's not shouting. He's not rabid. He doesn't seem out of control. But then what you do in your piece, you start going, okay, who is he associating with? Who has he been associating with? Some key names, some key figures that come out of the New Apostolic Reformation, some pretty extreme individuals. So who has Mike Johnson been running around with for the last several years, and why is he such a danger, would you say? So let me let me give a little backstory
0: here, just to situate the Mike Johnson connection. So, um, in in 2013, one of the major leaders in the NAR, a guy named Dutch Sheets, is um, is given a flag. It's a it's a historical American flag. It comes from the Revolutionary War. It's a white flag with a green pine tree at the center and the phrase "an appeal to heaven" across mm-hmm. the top. This flag that that phrase "an appeal to heaven" comes from a treatise by the philosopher John Locke. And this this flag was commissioned by George Washington to fly over the Massachusetts Navy. And it was it, and they they use this phrase from John Locke. John Locke was a very much inspiration to the Founding Fathers. Um and the idea is um, you make your appeals to unjust human governments. And at some point, you make an appeal to heaven if mm-hmm. the unjust government doesn't give you what you want. In other words, you go to war and let God <laughs> sort it out. And so Dutch Sheets received this receives this flag. He believes that he receives a prophecy that this flag is the symbol of a prophetic revolution that needs to take place in America. So it becomes this, this toto of this prophecy and spiritual warfare-driven style of Christian nationalism. And Touch Sheets writes a book about this, rolls out an entire campaign. And this flag has now flown over a number of state capitals. You have a lot of Christian lawmakers mm-hmm. who use the appeal to heaven flag as this coded symbol of it, oh, well, it's just this piece of American history, but it also has become this symbol of this prophecy and spiritual warfare style of Christian nationalism. So Dutch Sheets, is, is I argue in my book, um, was the most effective Christian mobilizer for January 6th. He did a full spectrum campaign trying to get Christians out for January 6th. But there are a number of NAR leaders who are also a part of that movement, and, and they were standing up like prayer calls and conference calls mm-hmm. that were... Gather, but bringing in people like Steve Bannon to talk strategy yeah. with apostles and prophets and other prayer leaders on how to mobilize people towards January 6th. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Mike, Mike, he uh, was another one, wasn't he? Mike Flynn was on. Some Mike of those Flynn calls. Was, was a part of that, was came and called in on some of those calls. Doug yeah. Mastriano, who ran for Pennsylvania governor, called in on a number of those calls. Marjorie Taylor Greene, right? So those, those calls though, um, Mike Johnson was uh, after the election gets certified after Biden gets inaugurated, those calls have continued. Those, they were called. They were originally called the Global Prayer for Election Integrity calls. They were organized by some NAR leaders, especially a guy named Jim Garlow, who was um, one of Trump's evangelical advisors, another guy named Mario Bromnick, who was another one of Trump's evangelical advisors, who really put those calls together. Those calls continue. They're called the World Prayer Network calls Dale. Mike Johnson was basically a, the congressional correspondent, hauling in from Congress on these calls for the last couple of years, sharing updates on what they're doing in Congress telling people how to pray talking strategy on these calls and he has said that Jim Garlow is one of the greatest influences on his life mm. right and Jim Garlow is a major apostle today in the New Habstock Reformation and here's the kicker outside of his congressional office most Congress people have three flags three flag poles usually an American flag usually a state flag and then some third flag Mike Johnson outside his congressional office flies an appeal to Heaven flag received from the associate pastor under Jim Garlow. And um they, if you want go and look at the footage, at this imagery, at the, the 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 photos, the videos of January 6th, these appeal to heaven flies are everywhere mm. on January 6th. It becomes because again Dutch sheets is mobilizing people to be there the NAR is mobilizing people to be there. And this is the symbol of this kind of spiritual warfare campaign. And Mike Johnson flies it outside his office. He's also mm. been very close He's close friends with a, a, an apostle in Shreveport, Louisiana, named Timothy Karskaden, who's a direct mentee of Touch Sheets, and um, and actually um, Mike Johnson hangs out at Timothy Karskaden's church quite a bit. Has invited Timothy Karskaden to hang out with him in Washington D.C. before, and and, and uh, so we, my my, my colleague Brad Leonides and I actually wrote this up in Rolling Stone in November, saying, "Hey, he's flying this flag. This and, and here's what this flag is a coded symbol yeah. for." And look at all these connections that he has to Dutch Sheets yeah. and these other NAR leaders. It's not, it's not like, oh, he's some random person gave him a flag and he happened <laughs> not to fly, a right? coincidence. He, he he is deeply attached to these, these people. A, like two weeks after we published this piece, it's announced that Mike Johnson is going to speak at a gathering of the National Association of Christian Lawmakers, mm-hmm. which is an organization led by another disciple of Dutch Sheets named Joe's, Jason Rapert, And the, the NACL is the leading organization that is trying to get... Christian lawmakers to fly these appeal to heaven flags wherever they have power, and so right this this is a deeply integrated connection. So even yes, yes, he's Southern Baptist, and but you even hear Mike Johnson in his rhetoric mimicking some of these NAR ideas. So right, the NAR is, is fixated on this idea of territorial spirits and the principalities and powers, and doing yeah. strategic spiritual warfare to displace these territorial spirits and principalities and powers. Mike Johnson has said the real enemies that we have in in Washington are not the Democrats. It's the principalities of powers. So like yeah. spiritual warfare, in the same way that Seven Mountains, right? It leaks, it leeches into other forms of evangelicalism. You're seeing these blendings of NAR spirituality and NAR prophetic concepts
1: with more what we would have thought as mainstream evangelicalism. Mm-hmm. You're right. These guys, if you actually delve into what they believe and what they teach and say, it's extreme, man. I mean, because the the connection that I had was around the 2020 election, I started hearing all these, a lot of these NIR prophets, you know, Dutch Sheets was one of them. There was a number of them that all prophesied to a man and woman that Trump was going to win by a landslide, the reelection. And then of course it didn't happen, comes January 6th and all that. Then they all, then i watched them try to explain essentially why their prophecy that they said god had told them was going to come to pass 100 true didn't happen and a lot of i mean some of the stuff they did was unbelievable when dutch sheets he went up to pennsylvania he went to some river he's digging up the riverbank he's putting stuff in there i mean it's all these signs and wonders and everything i mean these guys are some of them are seriously far out there and 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 by the way so dutch sheets does go to
0: Pennsylvania. He goes short just right, like right after the election. He, he goes mm-hmm. makes a trip to Pennsylvania right before the election. He goes again after the election. Leads this big prayer meeting where they're doing spiritual warfare. He's gathering. He has prophets on stage prophesying. Mm-hmm. Here's the backstory of that, though. After this Pennsylvania gathering that gets broadcast on Facebook, Dutch Sheets makes a trip to Washington, D.C. And he meets with people from inside the Trump administration. He's very coy. He never says who it was. But he says there were people inside the current administration and they tell him, what if you took that same style of event and took it to every one of the contested states Mm -hmm. and led a giant prayer meeting, a prophecy meeting in every one of the contested states. And this is what Dutchie says, like the next day he has gathered 15 to 20 NAR apostles and prophets and they are going to every one of the swing states. And it's like, Georgia. The next day, they're in New Mexico, right? The next day, they're in Arizona, right? Yeah. And, and 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 the logistics are incredible, and they they would hold these prayer meetings in in mega churches, hundreds, maybe thousands of people inside the room, three hour meetings, broadcast live on YouTube and Facebook, at least a hundred thousand people watching every one of these meetings, and the level of violent rhetoric. You hear from these prophets. I mean, they are talking mm-hmm. about cutting, spiritually cutting the heads off their enemies. You're yeah. talking about mobilizing militias for the kingdom of God, right? They are using the most amped up rhetoric. And you see these crowds mm-hmm. becoming so livid and so invested in these narratives. Hundreds of thousands of people watching this. And then those say that same group, Dutch Sheets traveling team, mm-hmm. ends up in Washington, DC on December 29th. And they have a two hour meeting. Inside the White House with unnamed Trump administration officials, where they come out and they say, We were talking strategy and we were talking and and we were prophesying and making apostolic declarations and talking strategy.
1: And then eight days later is January 6th. Yeah, I didn't know about those state meetings, but the piece I picked up on, you know, the failed Trump prophecies was that their explanation was, Well, they jumped on the big lie bandwagon. They, to a person, they basically said, Look, we were right. God was right. Trump did, in fact, win the election. However, it was stolen and it was, you know, illegal. It was rigged and all that. So they were able to slide right into the big line narrative, which of course fuels a lot of the January 6th stuff, isn't it? They're pissed off. They're angry. They're like, yeah, this is bullshit. We, we were robbed. We're going to go to the Capitol, storm the Capitol and make this thing right. So of course that all feeds into the narrative as well, doesn't it? And, and part of the NAR conception of prophecy is like Peter Wagner actually
0: embraced this kind of avant-garde theological idea called the openness of God or open theism, Mm -hmm. the idea that God may be all powerful, but God limits God's self so that God doesn't necessarily know and control the future. Instead, God works through human beings to change history, but sometimes God doesn't get what God wants. And so in in NAR theology, God wanted Donald Trump to be president, but then you Christians need to do spiritual warfare. To bring that about. Yeah, exactly. But this is what these Jericho marches. This is what all of this mobilization around January 6th is about. is about this campaign of spiritual warfare to galvanize Christians to pray, to galvanize Christians to be boots on the ground. This is the phrase is the phrasing that they use, right? The boots on the ground to do this spiritual warfare to drive out the demons that are stealing the election from Donald Trump. So it's not just about, oh well, the Democrats are stealing, or these disloyal Republicans. No, they are saying literally demons these principalities and powers are stealing the election. And then all this whole cohort of Wagner's followers and mentees are showing up on January 6th to do this strategic spiritual warfare, to cast the demons out of the Capitol because they believe that's the real battle. Now, in the in the aftermath of that, they can say, well, yeah, God wanted Trump to be president, but then Satan stole the election. So exactly. in their mind, this was just another battle. This was just another skirmish. It is ongoing war, what what Dutch Sheets calls a governmental war
1: over planet Earth. Mm. Yeah, definitely a concern. Well, I know you've got to go. We've talked about probably 45, 50 minutes, but I have one quick last question for you. Looking at your article about Mike Johnson, what is your biggest concern now going forward? Because I could see the narrative would be, oh, clearly, just like Tara Palin, God has placed him in a position of power and authority. He stands up at that lawmakers thing and he says, Oh, I'm just the Moses leading the nation through a Red Sea moment and all this lovely language and everything. What's your biggest concern for a guy like Mike Johnson going forward? My concern about Mike Johnson
0: dovetails with my concern about the NAR. Mm. Because when we, when we think back about what happened in 2020, right, what you saw was a, a, a close election, the one that with a very clear outcome, Joe Biden won, Donald Trump is incapable. Of accepting defeat. incapable true. of conceding. And so now we're gearing up for another presidential election that really has three possible outcomes. Donald Trump wins, and in my view, based on everything, his record and who he is, uh, that is the death, the death knell for American true. democracy. It is. Another option is Joe Biden wins. And in that case, I can't imagine a scenario in which Donald Trump accepts that outcome. Mm-hmm. He was willing to push things to January 6th because he wanted to stay in office for four more years. Now, he could go to prison if he loses this election. What is he willing to do? How far is he willing to push things? How far is he willing to gin up his supporters to this rage and that tipped over into violence before our very eyes on January 6th, right? We could really have another January 6th scenario, literally on January 6th, the day of certification. Same day. And and then the third option is it's such a close uh, election that they can't call it immediately. And suddenly you're in the scenario of the 2000 election yep. where they're doing recounts, right? The NAR understands those types of seasons, that contentious time as a seasoned to mobilized spiritual warfare to amp up their rhetoric of demonization. And in 2020, Nancy Pelosi was Speaker of the House. And so you got all these shenanigans, all these legal disputes, all, all of Trump's BS lawsuits, right? That all get thrown mm-hmm. out of court or, or go against him. What would happen if the Speaker of the House was backing Donald Trump's election lies and giving them legitimacy through congressional hearings? What would happen if a position, a, a, a person like Mike Johnson, mm-hmm. who was in, in the 2020 election the cycle and the post-election season, was mobilizing Republican lawmakers to sign on to an yeah. amicus brief supporting Trump's election lies? Yeah, he already was doing it like that, who is being advised by literal NAR apostles and prophets? Uh, what would happen if somebody like that is in that position? I, it is a very, very dangerous position for him to be in, right? And you're talking about somebody who, who the wrong
1: disaster hits, he's third in line for, for being president. That is frightening indeed. Yeah. The, none none of those three scenarios has a potentially good outcome. Some are worse than others for sure, but Yeah. The, the madness of Trump's base is just unbelievable. I mean, they're willing to take up arms. Obviously, we've seen that. You know, we didn't talk about the connection with militia groups, but, you know, there's that piece of it as well. Proud Boys and Oath Keepers and all those kind of groups like that, you know. So, yeah, there's a lot of concerning times coming forward. Well, so you've got a book coming out in September, The Violent Taken by Force. Let us know when it comes out, because maybe we can meet up again and talk about it, touch base and see how we can promote it. How can people find you on social media? What's the best place to get a hold of you? I'm I'm still mostly on Twitter
0: at Taylor Matthew I'm also on Blue Sky. I'm uh, I have a substack. Um, but if if you want to follow me on Twitter, you'll get kind of connected to everything else that I'm doing. I also I work at the Institute for Islamic, Christian, and Jewish Studies, and you can go on our website, iCJS.org. We've got a lot of programs coming up. In fact, we put together a short documentary about the new Australia Reformation in January 6th. It's called Spiritual Warriors. Mm-hmm. We're it's we're launching it. Uh, we're doing a premiere event in Baltimore at a theater. Um, on January thirty first, um, and then it'll, we're going to post it on YouTube right after the the, the premiere event. So okay. it'll be available to everyone basically on February first. Um, and so check it out; it's twenty five minutes, um, that, and and you can actually see these folks and, and on January sixth and what they're doing. It's it's all documented, right? It's
1: all on film. Yeah, that's the thing; they were filming each other. They were on Facebook Live and everything live streaming. Now it's come back to bite them in the ass, hasn't it? Well, listen, thank you, Doctor Matthew Taylor. This has been absolutely this is mind boggling. I mean. I've, not, I've researched a lot of this stuff, but the information you provided is just a whole nother level. So thank you for your research. Thank you for everything you've done. Keep doing it, and we will definitely touch base again. Thank you, Cliff.